This will be part two of three of our discussion with Dominic Brigani. We're going to pick up where we left off from part one. We'll be discussing various rescue cultures and the similarities and differences in mindset between them. We'll also talk a little bit about perceived system safety factors, NFPA authorities having jurisdiction, and some thoughts behind disruptive rescue. All right. Another thing, we're going to talk a little bit on the culture of fire department. And the culture of stuff has like been bugging the crap out of me because – teaching just a variety of people you always have well okay yeah this is how fire department this is the fire department discipline this is this is the industrial discipline this is mountaineering as a discipline this is canyoneering as a discipline this is military as a discipline or this is amga as a discipline and what's really interesting is these people that are in there you know and i was the same way for a while growing up doing mountain stuff is you don't see outside of your thing. So you think what you're doing in there is solely your discipline, right? This is just FD. This is what FD does, man. This is it. Maybe it's tradition. Maybe it's, it's pride, whatever. Uh, this is what mountaineering guys is. This is what guides do. And then reality, what's amazing is if, when you go full scope and, you know, I took like 10 years and just kind of just dabbled in every discipline out there. And it was amazing to me, the similarities through everything. You might need to tweak it a little bit this way in canyoneering because you're dealing with with some water quite a bit. Uh, you may need to deal tweak it slightly with this uh, doing mountaineering because you're never there to technically maybe do a, a rescue if you're if you're doing an expedition, right? If you're not a mountain rescue team, but you have things that you can create a rescue system off of if it needs to be. You know, then you have these these certain folks that that you know, pride themselves maybe as hey, this is this is military military mountaineering, and you're like. Man, you are so much closer to AMGA than you ever know, man. Like, and you badmouth AMGA, but you are you, you, like I haven't seen one technique that you've done yet that hasn't actually been AMGA at one point or another, or still is. And it, it's amazing these walls that people build up. When in reality, you just have cultures, man. And whoever influenced you, and I'm sure you see this in some of the tech teams. You know, the various is between this tech team versus that tech team even the fire service is these guys may use this but these guys use this and it ends up just being a, a bias of whoever kind of started that program or who some of the senior guys are and this is the way we did it this way we're going to keep doing it and actually now that i think about it i know you've got some stories on that one but but yeah that you, you more or less just see biases that are cultural where you can't really say oh this is the fire department way or this is the mountaineering mountain rescue way or anything like this because when you go across all those disciplines yeah, there's a lot of places that do that, man, and uh, and there may be a little tweak here, a little tweak there, based on somebody's preference. But in reality, there's not a huge amount of difference. Yeah, you may have different diameter ropes or different this or that, but as far as how you're rigging and things, not a huge, huge difference all the time. No, you're absolutely right. That you know, the fire service is a very tradition and culture-driven organization. So uh, upsetting that balance, uh, you know. That's like it's upsetting the thermal balance of the fire service. You, you, right. What we are taught is what we know, and that's what we teach again. And, and within that, there's cultures within cultures. So you've got that's the Florida way of doing stuff. That's the Connecticut way of doing stuff. And that's the West right. way of doing stuff. That's the East Coast way of doing stuff. Like, really, what is that? I mean, we have we have patients and we have rescuers and we have equipment. <laughs> right. <laughs> I I. I guess your environments dictate dictate a little bit of that, but uh, it's pretty much all the same. So, real quick, you know, we talked about a lot about studies and things like that. Are rope rescue technicians that that you get exposed to, and and you you work with a bunch of different departments uh, down there? 
are they able to stay up to date with all the research that's coming out? Because it's coming out pretty quick and fast. Are, are they able to keep up with it? And, it, you know, is it permeating down to them from from these various organizations? Because I think even Tom Evans talked about, you know, he was he was doing some study and, and John McKinley from CNC came up from out in California, came up to him and was like, oh, you should read my paper. And he's like, oh, I'd love to if I could find it. Like, you know, it, yeah. he ended up having it. There was nowhere. You couldn't find it anywhere on the Internet. And I think they're working on getting better permeation out there on the Internet. But, you know, even for, for these studies to get, to get out to these people is it getting out there or is it is what is it making a difference it's it's really not getting out to them um on the ground and this kind of goes back to our conversation we had about craft rescue as craft um and a lot of that's based on you know what what, what drives you to be a rescue technician but as as a as a whole the information really isn't getting trickled down um not even snail mail you have to you have to look at it this way, Sean. It, if you have a technical rescue team, there's five, maybe six disciplines that they're trained in, and they get to train, if if best, once a month, right, or bi-monthly. So now you only have six months a year to train, and then you'll have a rope drill, a confined space drill, a trench drill, a collapse drill, a swift water drill, maybe one other uh, over the course of a year, and you have four maybe let's let's say well they're generous this year and they give you eight hours to train on it there's not a lot that that an individual rescuer gets to pick up in that four to eight hour period right so they got to run the belay and they got the haul on the haul line and they did that once a year and that's mm-hmm. generally as much training slash information that they get okay you know maybe they've got a uh, an eight up training director or you know, there's a click of guys that actually, you know, read some of the trade journals, um, get on the Internet, look at some videos. But that's the extent of it. So the, the information is really not getting there. And, and how, do, how do we get change that? That's a topic that I know we've all been talking about. Yeah, it's funny you should bring that because I didn't even really have this as any of our talking points. But you brought up like even with trade journals is it kind of amazes me the misinformation that doesn't even get caught put into really pretty respectable trade journals you know sure. <laughs> i've got some pictures in some of my powerpoints when we obviously you know we we don't really do powerpoints we don't do classroom stuff when we're teaching regularly unless it's a downtime or we're buying time to build in a scenario or something but i've got ones from breaching where they're literally it's a how to in a tactical magazine and the halligan is backwards like they're going to breach the wall away from the door yeah the way that that picture is uh, at the same time with rope, we won't say any names or publications or anything, but I, I've got one on my computer that I always pull out. And it's a, it's a guy who, who writes the same guy, all of their rope stuff. And it, it's pretty amazing. The, the lack of some foundational knowledge or the misinformation that comes out like complete inaccuracy uh, to the point where he's even given an example of uh, of a five to one complex MA and has it labeled as a six to one. I, and you're like, I, I don't again, even know the what word, to say. We didn't share notes on that, but that was exactly what the example that I had in my head was. I, I remember that uh, publication very well. <laughs> and that's a, that's a, that's a good publication, man. But to make it through, to get into a print, as a subject matter expert and you're mislabeling a five to one complex as a six to one is, yeah, it's, that's, I guess that's an issue. Right. And, and then the, the write up behind it, as far as the efficiencies and all is inaccurate. That's, 
it, it, it's it's troublesome. So guys even want to pursue to get better better learning. They're they're ate up and they look into these publications and and come to find out you know they're getting misinformation too, which which is kind of crazy. Well, it's it's the you know who who taught that guy, it, right. and what's the definition of a rope rescue expert? Yeah, really, what is it, it, you know. Uh, <laughs> And that's a good point, man, is, is, you know, you and I were talking about it, and I think I brought it up in one of the podcasts too, is what, what is an advanced rope rescue guy? And I think that that's pretty screwed up, you know, and, and we, I think we were talking about Crandall who, who wrote some good stuff on there saying, hey, you know, when you've reached that technician level where a lot of people want to believe they're, you know, I'm a rope, rope technician too, or I'm this or I'm that, sprat this or sprat that, it's, yeah, you got the cert, man, which means that, like, you are at the lowest level of that certification known to man. Yeah. Like you, you, you just got it. Yeah. You have no experience in, in working it, teaching it, pushing the limits, doing that, you know, and it's that a process that takes you over that bell curve. You're sitting on the front of that bell curve to get you to the other side of that bell curve or even off that bell curve to where you understand it in, innately, you know, how it's going to operate, how it's going to behave, what the behavior characteristics of, of that is and that's i think where where you get voodoo into it but i also think like I, the last thing in the world i'd want to be talked about is an expert in anything because that you know once you tote yourself as that i think that's right before you you, you get humbled really bad yeah and you know seniority doesn't help in, in that yeah you can have the technician certification and have 25 years in and it doesn't necessarily mean you you remembered any of it or have kept up on it so, yeah, or practice it or yeah. yeah, push yourself beyond that level. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So now we're talking certifications. Let's uh, let's move into what you see. And I know we've talked about it a bunch. We talked about it with Jeff a little bit. As far as the, the misunderstanding out there of okay. NFPA and not just within the fire service but throughout uh, everybody's understanding of it. And I think you know NFPA – probably isn't doing itself much of a favor, especially with its 1006 and 1670 curriculums or guidelines by, by keeping, you know, and I got it's NFPA, but everybody just thinks, okay, NFPA, it's fire, it's fire related, man. Innately, they feel like it's 12 and a half millimeter and it's, it's steel this and 40 kilonewton minimums and some craziness in there. When in reality, that's nowhere in 1670 uh, or 1006. Yeah, we worked, obviously, we worked 1006 quite a bit at technician levels, and they're, they're JPRs, man. They're job performance requirements, and they never dictate, one, your technique or your equipment. And somehow people just move NFPA 1983, a manufacturer standard, into their operations with, with little thought uh, and not understanding what an authority having jurisdiction is. Yeah, you're you're opening up the business now, Sean. Uh, yeah, hit it, man. What, what, what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, uh, NFPA is is, a, is the great organization. Its standards are, you know, without them, the, the industry would be lost, right? So there has to be some framework behind it. But what what is probably the most misunderstood thing in the entire technical rescue business is what the NFPA documents actually say. Right. So first, they're hard. They're hard enough to read. So your average fireman's not going to sit there and try to study them. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and then once you once you get them deciphered, you'll, you're right. There's there's nowhere in there that this, that it handcuffs the end user 
to any particular system safety factors or what kind of equipment to use. The, the 1983 standard is written for manufacturers, right? Yeah. Not for the end user. And and the 15, 15 to 1 safety factor for is a fallacy. Is a fallacy. It's an absolute fallacy. I can't tell you how many times I've heard multiple really good rescue people, right, and teams across the United States as we go out and teach, and they will recite the 15 to 1 system safety factor. There is no such thing. There is no such thing. At best, you know, you're lucky if you're getting a 10 to 1 system safety factor, right? Right. Um, I know we just had an SOP meeting. And, uh, you know, that was that was one of the sticking points is that the document needs to read a 15 to 1 system safety factor. And I kind of brought up the fact that, you know, about 25 years ago, we were using, again, we were using half inch, uh, um, three quarter inch ropes. Right. And we got rid of them because they were too big and, you know, too cumbersome. And we didn't need that strength out of it because we didn't need that strength. But going back to a 15-1 system safety factor, then we would have to go back three-quarter-inch ropes <laughs> and, and an 80 kilonewton steel carabiners for everything. Um, yeah, it's, and I think it, it is pretty incredible, and it's a static system safety factor that they're looking at. And so obviously the origin for people that are listening, you know, I, I think it was, I don't know how many editions ago at one point – I think 1983 had in there that they estimate uh, one person to be 300 pounds and two people is 600. That's gone now, and you never saw a consistency across the board. You look at European standards, you look at UIA, you look at all these different – and it's always different numbers as far as what they consider a, a one-person, two-person load. But even at that, if we go at that, somebody with extra time in their hands you know, basically took – 600 pounds and took a g-rated uh, rope uh, a 12.5 millimeter rope at uh 9,000 pounds roughly and divided it man and came up with their 15 it's supposed to be 15 to 1 and it stuck not realizing that the second you tie a knot in your 12 and a half millimeter rope it's no longer a 15 to 1 yeah let alone because it's a system right you have to find what the weakest part of. And before they figured, yeah, it was the rope because the carabiners kept their strength and, you know, we're using 40 kilonewton carabiners or whatever. But now even with Tom Evans, if you have a single prussic in there and you're not doing, you know, your your tandem prussics or whatever, your single prussic isn't – that number isn't doubled. So if you're thinking, you know, I'm using an 8-millimeter nylon nylon that's, what, 3,200 pounds roughly and I've got a two-person load, that automatically takes your system safety factor down to a 5.3. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're using a single rope graph, which is safe, man. But yeah, it's it's. But my point is, is yeah, if you're doing a system, you, what's the weakest part of your system? And that's what you got to go from. And it's probably going to be now after that data is out, it's probably going to be oppressive. So what what are you gonna? I, I don't know. What are you gonna do? It's a, yeah, it's it's crazy, man. So you know, if you keep wanting to build this into your head, people need to understand that you know we can either live in this your fake world or or come to reality and and either lower our safety factors and be comfortable with it because you've been doing it for a while and come to reality or not so yeah it's kind of the, the reason why everyone wants this giant you know 15 to 1 system safety factor is for one they don't know the standard two it's what's been passed down for generations at this point and three just like I said, the average rope technician in the fire service gets trained once a year in rope. So now we have to build our systems with uber 
amounts of safety or error, room for error, and, and build it to the weakest link, right? As far as the, not the equipment weakest link, but the personnel's weakest link. So they think bigger is better. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I pulled out uh, the current edition of 1006. Obviously, 1006 is changing a little bit and are going to be kind of combining a little bit. So 1670 and 1006 uh, read a little bit more similar or fall in line with each other a little bit better. But the reason that we do 1006 is, like I said before, it doesn't dictate your technique. It doesn't dictate your equipment or anything so you know just as an example if you're looking uh like chapter six right it currently is 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 rope rescue for 1006 but if you look at 6.1.8 it's you know the jprs descend a fixed rope in a high angle environment given an anchored fixed rope system a specified minimum travel distance for the rescuer a system to allow descent of a fixed rope a belay system a life safety harness worn by the person descending and personal protective equipment yeah, that's it. You know, so if you had, you know, military had some freaking dental floss that's strong enough that meets their authority having jurisdiction strength, you could do that with a a, a spine wrap or a munter hitch and dental floss if that's what your authority is having jurisdiction dictated and meet that JPR man. The AHJ is the most important part of the whole thing, right? So right. The authority of having jurisdiction. If you've trained on it and you've got your JPRs checked off in ten oh six then it's yours. You own it, right? Yeah. It's not an NFPA standard at that point. It's it's yours. You trained on it. And that, you know, that brings up SOPs and how your team's going to operate. Right. Whole other- so, yeah, I, and I think just people, there's a misunderstanding of an authority having jurisdiction. And, uh, and I think NFPA is pretty clear about it, man. They put all that stuff from system safety factor to equipment to you name it into your authority having jurisdiction and that's why that's why it's not dictated in the jprs and you know like the one i just read didn't have anything about what how you do it or what that safety factor is in there or the equipment you use to do it so uh i think yeah i think there's just a, a learning curve on that that's that gets kind of frustrating but yeah 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 absolutely uh, absolutely i don't so think there was ever a time in the nfpa's history where they tried to handcuff the end user no I don't, yeah, I don't I think there are committees, but I, I can pretty much tell you <laughs> that's not not the reason why they created standards is to handcuff the end user. No, and, and I think I, I love it because we can take, uh, let's say, the military, military mountaineering course, and we take the part that has to do with rescue and, and rope access on there. And you can put those requirements that are in those guidelines, and they lay perfectly across NFPA 1006. There's really not a rope discipline that you can think of, whether you're talking canyoneering, caving, or anything that those aren't relevant for. You're going to need an anchor. You may need a two-point anchor. You're going to need a rope. You may need to ascend it. You may need to descend it. You know, they're universal requirements that that regardless of, of what you do, if you're doing rope and it has to do with access and rescue, those JPRs are going to be relevant. They're, they're that open-ended, you know? Yeah. So, you know, so, so what's up with the cultures then? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That, that's it. It's, it's how somebody interprets it or how they want. Yeah. You know, they want it to be done the way that they've always done it. And, and that's the, where the comfort level is or something. I don't know, man. It's like a uh, training wheels or something. Safety. It's your, it's Linus and his, his little dirty blanket, man. 
All right, moving through, we're, we're talking a bunch here, but let's hit on a, a couple things. One is you and I and Brent and Frank have been working a bunch on the topic of disruptive rescue, and that's technically what this podcast series is on. One, I probably need to hit on, I probably should have done this on the freaking intro, but you know, when we talk disruption, a lot of times disruption may have a negative impact as far as like your kids are disrupting people in class and you get the call from the school or you're disruptive and whatever where disruptive in this sense especially disruptive innovation and things like that is actually a a cultural change it's a, an improvement on the way things have been done it's disrupting that standard that isn't relevant for people and or isn't relevant for a larger group of people and it gets disruptive and things grow and it's actually kind of a positive a very positive type of utilization of the word disruptive meaning that we're actually finding some truth in things. And that's why we kind of start off with Tom Evans is he really disrupted for the better how we rig by showing that what we've been taught isn't actually technically correct. How things break, how things behave before they break or, or while we're tensioning them is is huge. And But it did disrupt, really it disrupted a lot of things, right? It disrupted uh, a lot of people's books that are out there, disrupted a lot of people's SOPs. And that's a good thing, right? Because we're actually learning to to do it based on data-driven type of, of contingencies on that. So with with that being said, we've talked a bunch about disruptive rescue, and one is is getting rescue capabilities to the non-professional rescuer because in reality, everyone should have a rescue capability. And when we look at from Rescue Task Force for Active Shooter Response to to the, the cop, you know, needing a, a fast rescue capability, not just for an active shooter event, for, for pulling up uh, on a scene with a car on fire or whatever that may be. Rescue, everybody should have a rescue capability. And a lot of people are hesitant to go in that route because they're like, holy crap, man, Dom's been doing it for this. Sean's been doing it for, you know, th- this long. And uh, it's, I don't have that type of time commitment. When in reality, over the past, what, eight years, you know, we've really nailed down to where if you can cut the fat, and a lot of the BS, it's really you don't need to know. You don't need to know 100 different damn knots to do rope stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you knew six, which is knots, hitches, and really like even rope grab type techniques and all, you can do probably like 99% of the rescues out there and keep it really simple, non-complex, and you can do it under really harsh stress by teaching – by changing the way that we teach a little bit. And I think – we we pushed away from the how you do it, like hey, this is this is how you do this, or this is how you do not pass, which we're gonna have to talk about. To why you do it, this is why you do it, and these are the ways in which you can accomplish this. But this is the overarching concept, and then we allow them to try and figure it out. And in that, they're learning by how they're figuring it out, and they're like, ooh, okay, I had it right there, and then I screwed it up. How, why did that screw up? Oh, if I did this, okay, let me do this. And the next thing you know, like they figured it out themselves, and it makes really good sense. Then us showing them real quick and moving them to a different station. Yeah, well, we've we've worked a bunch on this together. You know, we saw in, in one location we were teaching the fire department USAR team, and they had all previously come from a a state rope class, and they were taught not passing, and it was you know show and tell. You know, and I'm not putting this out there to bash anybody and how they're doing this their stuff because. This is all all constructive uh, criticisms and bringing up points to bring up better information for everybody else. But it's, there's a there's a huge difference on on how this stuff can be taught, right? So 
that's teaching in that cognitive domain domain that uh, that we talk about with Van Stralen and, and HRO, where in that cognitive domain, um, we're, we're just teaching people a skill and they memorize the skill. And if they're lucky enough to memorize the skill and keep up the skill, that's that's the only thing they have where in the way we've been teaching in nature with HRO in the effective domain. Now we are teaching them how to think. Right which is in our job, it requires critical thinking because every, every scenario is a little bit different. So what we saw when we were teaching not passing to the military guys at that time was we brought not passing in, what, the second day? Yeah, yeah. I think first thing in the first first thing in the second day of their, their class, man. Yeah, we, we decided to push it days ahead. Yeah, and our eyes were like, what the heck is going on here? Because... Yeah, okay, they're really bright guys, right? But we proved this by bringing it to other classes and, and seeing the same same results was once they learned how to think and they understood the systems, they could build anything. Yeah. Right? The rest of the class was like kind of a breeze because of that. And that's a, it's a tried and true uh, stand-up reason why effective domain learning is, is, is the way to go. All right, that's the end of part two with Dominic Bergani. The third and final part of the series will be uploaded in the next few days. I appreciate it. Thanks.